The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Empower Radio presents The Miracle of Healing with Lisa Campion. Meet healers, learn different modalities, and hear empowering stories of people on their healing journey. The Miracle of Healing on Empower Radio. Here's your host, Lisa Campion. Hello, I'm Lisa Campion, and this is The Miracle of Healing on Empower Radio, where we come together every week to discuss all different kinds of healing, And I know that's something the world needs a lot of these days, maybe now more than ever, right? So if you're new to my show, I just want to give you a warm welcome. And if you've been journeying with us for a while, welcome back. What what, what would happen for you if you could experience the worst that life has to offer you, not by breaking down and freaking out, but by shifting up into a higher functioning, more highly awakened state? Well, that's something that our guest, Steve Taylor, has figured out how to do. And after many years of observing and studying the phenomenon of life-changing awakening through extreme suffering, psychologist Dr. Steve Taylor has coined the term transformation through turmoil. So join us now as we talk about how our struggles can lead us to a dramatic shift in this new expansive identity and lead to us to extraordinary awakenings. So welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, Lisa. Great to be with you. So, um, wow, I just felt like your your book was so um, so important. The work that you've done is so important in working out, seeing its trauma as a transformational experience and even a spiritually awakening experience. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came even to, um, to be doing that kind of work? It, it went back to uh, an experience I had myself about 15 years ago. I was seriously ill for fortunately the only time in my life so far. And um, I was in hospital for about three weeks, you know, very, very ill. But when I, when I began to recover and when I realized I was going to be healthy again, I just felt this tremendous sense of gratitude. I felt like, you know, all my life I'd been taking my body for granted, but now I was really aware of how fantastic and how precious my body is and how, you know, how miraculous my body is, all of these, um, incredible processes that take place to keep me healthy and alive. So it really changed my attitude to life. I, I felt as though I had a real sense of, you know, the meaning of life, the, the preciousness of life and the, the fragility of life. And, it, and it, I, you know, I, thought, I thought it was going to be a temporary thing. It actually remained probably at a less intense level. It became a sort of permanent thing. I had this new sense of appreciation. So I began to investigate similar experiences in other people. And, you know, over the years, I, I did a few research projects on and I developed the concept of transformation through turmoil based on the experiences I investigated. Hmm. And it seems like in your work, you can maybe divide people into two different groups. So, we, you know, we all have trauma pretty much. I've never met anybody that hasn't. Some people have more than than others, but we can either let the turmoil, let the trauma that we have sort of crush us right and that does happen to some people but you talk about how there are certain people that 
where that doesn't happen, where we don't get like destroyed. We somehow shift into something new where that trauma becomes like a initiation experience, if you will, into a, yeah. a different state of awareness. So, so let's talk when you call those people shifters. Let's talk about the shifters for a minute. What's the difference? Like why, why does it mm. sort of kill mm. some people and other people shift? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a mysterious phenomenon that in some people, uh, intense suffering gives rise to spiritual awakening, whereas in others, it just seems to break them down. Yeah. Um, but for, for, a lot, for, for a small proportion of people, it's not just a breakdown, but also a shift up into a new state of awareness, a new state of being. And I did identify a few different factors. Um, partly it was connected to the attitude that people had towards their predicament towards their trauma or their suffering. So if people, you know, understandably, when some people face trauma, they don't want to face up to the reality of it. They try to divert themselves from it. They don't contemplate the full enormity of it. But, you know, in order to experience transformation, people were willing to do that. They were willing to face up to the reality, no matter how painful it was. For example, I found cases of people who were diagnosed with cancer and underwent transformation. And in almost every case, you know, the, the beginning of the transformation was really contemplating the reality that they were possibly going to die and what that meant, you know, losing everything and potentially losing everything, you know, and being separated from all the people they loved. And then probably the, the most important stage after that was acceptance. People had to really open themselves up to the reality. They had to sort of embrace it in, in, a, in a strange way. In a paradoxical way, they had to really embrace their predicament, no matter how terrible it seemed, so to let go of any resistance. And that was often when transformation occurred in a moment of acceptance. Interesting. And uh, what kind of transformation do, is possible? Like what happens to the people that allow that to happen? Uh, well, it, it's it's a spiritual awakening, which which is pretty much equivalent to you know spiritual awakening as it's discussed in various spiritual traditions. So, it, it, I mean, one characteristic was a feeling of connection, a feeling of no longer being separate to the world. So people felt very connected to other people, very empathic and very altruistic towards other people. They felt connected to nature in a way that they never did before. So nature seemed really beautiful to them. And they felt as though, as though they, were, they were part of nature. Mm. Uh, and also, um, they had a, a sense of appreciation, a bit like I described myself earlier. They were really aware of the, you know, the beauty and the preciousness of being alive in the world and the beauty and preciousness of other people. They no longer took things for granted, basically. All of wow. that kind of familiarity and taking for grantedness just faded away. And they just felt really grateful for the, the simple things in life, you know, just sort of, eating and drinking and speaking to other people and looking at the sky, all of those simple things became really, really beautiful to them. It feels like a sort of a radical shift into first mindfulness. So being fully aware in the moment, right. And mm. sort of universality. So this, you know, transpersonal, like there's more than just, it's more than just about me. Right. Yeah. That, that, um, that can happen in gratitude, maybe gratitude for the moment. That seems like part of it too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Presence was important. You know, people were no longer particularly interested in the future or the past. They were only only really interested in the present moment. And the present moment became much more real to them. And um, 
Yeah, there was there was there was a sense of gratitude just for the present moment, or where, where, whatever it may hold. You know, they were just grateful to be alive in the present moment. That's beautiful. You know? And what kind of traumas were you looking at, and how did you find the people that you that you included in your research? Uh, well, there's a wide variety of trauma. In a sense, you know, the type of trauma isn't really that important. It seems to be as long as the trauma is quite intense, then that seems to be, you know, that that was the catalyst for transformation. But I did, you know, I did meet some very interesting people in very unusual situations. For example, I found cases of soldiers who underwent transformation as a result of the stress and turmoil of, of warfare and, you know, and, and the danger and the, you know, the possibility of encountering death. Wow. Um, also, prison. In fact, in fact, prison was one of the most fertile um, environments I found for transformation. I actually devoted two chapters. I had so many cases of prisoners who underwent transformation. I love the I analogy you chapters. made between, or the the, the connection well, you cat. made between. Yeah, there's my cat. <laughs> She's always here. But um, between prisoners and monks, you know, like you you kind of connected that um, the the life in prison as being sort of a monastic experience, and that it has a lot of the same ingredients that monks who would go into seclusion would do to find their enlightenment states of enlightenment that's right yeah i mean they, they even both live in cells you know the right? monks live in cells as well but um yeah there, there are some parallels i mean obviously the big difference is that monks choose that life whereas prisoners don't you know they're, they're thrown into that life against their will right. but there are certain parallels i mean another difference is that life in a monastery is much quieter has much less turbulence than life in prison well, essentially, the, you know, the essential similarity, well, there are probably two things. One is that in prison, people have the opportunity for self-exploration. You know, in ordinary life, when life is busy and it's full of other people, it's full of activity, a lot of people just never really get the chance to enter their own being and explore right. their own being. But in prison, when you're inactive a lot of the time, when you have a lot of solitude, you're forced to enter into your being which you may never have done before. And, and, and obviously for a lot of people, that's a very painful experience because sometimes our own beings hold trauma. They hold psychological discord. But when some people take that opportunity to explore their own beings, they find something, you know, they find a depth. They find a kind of a space inside themselves, which, which they were never aware of before. And they, they start to consider their own actions as well. They, they start to reflect about what they've done. They start to feel perhaps a sense of connection to other people, even to the victims of their crimes. But so that's one thing, that opportunity to, to self-explore. But probably the most important factor is that in prison, you're forced to let go of a lot of things. Hmm. Just like monks separate themselves from ambitions, possessions, relationships, society, and so on. In prison, you know, you're, you're also forced to let go. And that can have, um, that can bring about a process of identity dissolution, you know, because your identity comes from the things you are attached to, the right. things that you identify with outside the prison in your ordinary life. But in prison, you know, without possessions, without your normal relationships, without your role in society, without your status, and so on, your identity can kind of crumble away, right? which is painful for some people, but in other people, it can allow a new identity to emerge inside them, a kind of new spiritual identity. 
It just occurs to me as you're talking about this that these are experiences that no one would actually willingly choose. You know, That's true. like Yeah. we don't choose that. We don't choose a catastrophic illness or to be like totally messed up but for being a combat veteran, you know, like we don't choose those experiences and yet they're the ones I mean, I guess monks do, like, you know, some people do. But really the kind of experiences you're talking about for the most part are things that happen to us. Do you feel Mm. like Exactly. there's like a rhyme like why? Why is that like the 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 hand of your own soul in your life, do you think, kind of giving you an opportunity for this extraordinary these extraordinary circumstances? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it almost always happens spontaneously. I mean, you, you can obviously cultivate spiritual awakening. I mean, a lot of people do by following a, a spiritual practice, spurring, following a spiritual path. And, and then it happens gradually over many years. But, you can, but it also happens accidentally and often quite suddenly and dramatically through intense suffering. And yeah, in, in some ways, you know, the, probably the strangest thing about it was that in all of the people I interviewed, it was almost as if there was a there was a spiritual self inside them which was already formed and it was just waiting for the opportunity to emerge. It was a bit like a you know a, a chick which is ready to hatch from an egg. It's just you know it's fully formed. It's, it's just waiting for the right moment to to hatch. And it was a bit like this. You know, it, it was almost as if there were two people. They were kind of this superficial ego self, Right. which they'd been for the for the whole lives previously. But at the same time, there was this latent, higher functioning spiritual self inside them, and it all you know, and maybe subconsciously, people were attracting certain experiences to allow their egos to crumble away, Right. so that this new self could emerge inside them. Possibly, I mean, I, I investigate investigated a lot of cases of addiction when people, you know, were severely addicted to drugs or alcohol for many years. And eventually their identity crumbled away. They lost everything, you know. And, you know, maybe subconsciously they, were, they wanted to go through that process in order to destroy their egos, possibly. Right. I mean, I feel like the grip of the ego is so strong on us that it, it it's not going to really voluntarily choose to die very often. No. Like sometimes, you know, you said like there are the monks or the, the yogis and, you know, people who, who really dedicate themselves to spiritual practice. But these extreme examples, it it's like it's almost like we have to force the ego in, into such an s- extreme situation that it's got no choice um, but to let go. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think when people follow spiritual paths and practices, they're doing something similar in a very, you know, gradual way. They're slowly undoing the ego, slowly kind of softening the ego uh, so that it slowly dissolves away. That doesn't always work, of course, but, you know, some people can practice meditation for decades and it doesn't really seem to have much effect on them. That's But right. usually it does, you know, that there is some sort of gradual... effect of transcending the ego but yeah it, you know it but in the experiences which i've investigated investigated you know it happens very suddenly and dramatically in the midst of uh, trauma So I really like how you break down the idea of awakening experiences versus sort of the concept of enlightenment, you know, because I think or being fully awakened, it's we maybe in our minds, we think, oh, we're going to have 
you it, it's like turning on a light bulb like you turn it on once and you're illuminated forever after and you you hmm. talk about maybe it doesn't happen that way in your book can you tell a little say a little bit more about that yeah i tend to avoid the word enlightenment because i think it suggests this kind of final distinct state which is completely distinct from ordinary awareness hmm. but i think there's actually a continuum there, there are lots of gray areas and gradations between normal awareness and enlightenment or wakefulness as i prefer to call it so wakefulness is kind of it occurs in different intensities you know people can be slightly awakened you know me mildly awakened or they can be very intensely awakened and i think quite a lot of people exist in a, a kind of low intensity state of wakefulness maybe not so many people exist in a very intense state of wakefulness but you know, um, it is a continuum, and it's probably in that sense, it's probably more more common than we think. Certainly, I'm always surprised at the the examples I find. You know, people write to me almost every week and say, "Oh, I've had this, I've had this kind of experience that you're writing about." You know, I was diagnosed with cancer, I was addicted to drugs, etc. And in in most cases, people went through this experience or didn't know anything about spirituality. They didn't know they'd become spiritually awakened because they didn't have a a context to make sense of their experience. Right. So it was only later on when they began to read about spirituality, they thought, ah, you know, maybe I've become spiritually awakened. This this sounds like me. So I think there are there are a lot of people around who are actually awakened, but don't know it and have never actually shared it with anybody. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's sort of a far cry from like the spiritual communities or if you study Buddhism or, you know, yoga, then there's sort of a vocabulary for those processes. But, um, you know, if you're not in that group, then that we don't have like a, a context or a vocabulary, you know, and mm -hmm. I like it that you talk about gradations because that's, I think that's more realistic than the light, the light bulb kind of, you know, moment that most people think it is. Yeah. It can be a bit problematic as well. I think one of the issues I have with the concept of enlightenment is that it makes it sound like it's a very completely blissful and easy state. Mm. But in actual fact, it can be a difficult process. Quite a few people who go through spiritual awakening do go through a, a fairly difficult period of integration, yeah. especially if they don't understand what's happened because they feel confused. There was one guy um, I, I interviewed. He he had an awakening in prison and uh, he didn't know anything about spirituality. So he thought that, that there was something wrong with him. He found the book of psychiatric conditions and wow. started to look through the book, trying to, <laughs> trying to find his condition. Luckily he didn't find it. And he thought, wow, maybe there's not something wrong with me. Oh, that's <laughs> so, so interesting. Wow. Yeah. Then he found a book about spirituality and, th and, and discovered, wow, you know, this is what's happened to me. You know, I've actually undergone an awakening. And but also it can cause when it's very dramatic, it can sometimes cause psychological disturbances. Yes. You know, problems with concentration, problems with socializing and, and so forth. Mm. So, you know, it, it can be a challenging process. I think maybe people who've undergone that feel separated from the rest of other people or isolated or they don't maybe then fit into the rest of their old life so well, right? Exactly, yeah. It sometimes causes problems with relationships. You know, it's yeah. not uncommon for for relationships or marriages to break up after these experiences because sometimes it's almost as if people become different people who who are living in the same body. Right. So for their partners, it's, it is literally as if they're married to a new person. 
How interesting. So it sometimes leads to breakdowns. Also friendships as well, because, you know, the person's old friends don't understand them anymore. And um, they, they often think that they've gone crazy and that there's something wrong with them. So, yeah, it can cause problems in that sense, too. I know. I think there's a lot of, like, um, literature and studies that are written about, you know, even um, depression as a side effect of this or people who who've um, not only feel like they've gone crazy, but actually sort of do. Do you have, are yeah. there are people that don't take it well and kind of go off the deep end into, into real problems? Sometimes, but it's, it's usually only temporary. Um, I think the real problems arise when awakenings are, are very sudden and very dramatic. They can sometimes be like earthquakes, you know, yeah. they can be quite explosive. I guess that's a bit like a Kundalini awakening. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And sometimes it doesn't go well for people. They can go kind of nutty. No. That's yeah. true. But but if they have support and if they, you know, you know also maybe if they have therapy, then it, it does tend to, you know, fade away after a certain amount of time. In fact, in every case that I've investigated, it has always faded away eventually. It's a bit like a, an earthquake in very, very slow motion. You, you know, an earthquake disturbs the ground. Everything is thrown into disarray. But, you know, slowly it settles again. And it's a bit like that, you know, after this earthquake of spiritual awakening, there is often a very long period of settling and integration. And do you make like a connection between people who have these types of traumatic experiences and people who have near-death experiences? Is that part of the category that you studied? Yeah. Well, near-death experiences, you know, they they almost always have a very powerful transformational effect. But I, I talk about two kinds of near-death experiences. There are near-death experiences in a kind of literal sense when people just have a close encounter with, with death due right. to an illness or a car accident and so forth. And there are the kind of classic near-death experiences when people are dead for a short amount of time and then leave their bodies and float through darkness towards a light and sometimes meet diseased relatives and so forth. But both of those experiences are transformational, particularly the second kind. Mm. You know, even in, in real time, near-death experiences may only last a few seconds, maybe a few minutes at the most. But people are fundamentally and deeply changed for the rest of their lives. You know, it's, it's so interesting about this whole topic because I, I work primarily as a psychic, you know, and I've been doing that since I was 19. And mm -hmm. now working professionally, way back then, before anybody was really doing it. And nowadays I teach people psychic development and um, I find there's a flood of people that are coming to me looking for, um, you know, how to understand their psychic abilities because they've gone through things like you're talking about. And I wondered mm. if you encountered um, an increase in psychic ability as part of the, uh, the thing that happens when you have an awakening yeah. like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there seems to be an increase in all kinds of like intuitive, creative mm. abilities. People become more creative. For yeah. example, one guy, excuse me, after his near-death experience, started to um, compose uh, symphonies and to paint wow. to try to depict his experiences. Um, but yeah, people do sometimes report, uh, you know, developing almost telepathic abilities, mm -hmm. sometimes precognition. Yep. So, yeah, that, that is quite common. The, the ones that I see are people who have had near-death experiences, like you've, the two kinds that you talked about, 
sometimes come back with the ability to speak to dead people. And a lot, mm. almost all mediums, mm. the, some mediums are born with the gift, but many get it um, sort of midlife because it's connected with this brush they have with death. Really? That's, yeah. that's very interesting. Yep. I found some cases where people, you know, they their transformation was related to bereavement. Mm. And their bereavement included contact with the person who, who they had lost. Right. And that was yeah. very powerful for them. And the, and, and the contact did often continue, become an ongoing phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. And that can really also change your perspective about life if you then have sort of proof that there's an afterlife. You know, it can really oh, yeah. sort of open uh, our minds to a new, a new level of reality that we didn't maybe believe before. That's right. Yeah, that was one of the things I found generally in my research was that even if their transformation wasn't related to bereavement or to a near-death experience, people usually had an intuitive sense that there was more to life, that there was some kind of afterlife. And that, yeah, as you say, in itself, that is enough to change your attitude to life. You know, if you believe that there is something more and you believe that life is not just a, a temporary phenomenon in this form. So, Steve, your work is so fascinating. Um, let's share with our listeners how they can um, reach you and find your book. So let's take a look at your website. Do you work individually with people? Like, how are you working? How do you work with people? Um, I don't work individually. I do research um, involving interviews, but I, I'm, a, I'm a psychologist at a university part time. So I, I give lectures and do research at my university. I see. Yeah. So if people want to find out more about your research in the book that and your book, they can find you on your your website here. Yeah, that's right. That's the best place to go. Stephen M. Taylor dot com. Okay. I write poetry and I write lots of essays. So a lot of them are on my website. Great. And let's take a look at where people can find your book on Amazon, too. So um, we can get a gander at, at what the cover looks like. And there it is on Amazon. So um, so I hope everyone who's listening can run right out and get your book extraordinary awakenings because i thought it was fascinating i couldn't put it down i was like up really late last night like reading it <laughs> i was like oh my god it's so it's so interesting so um oh, that's great yeah i just t- totally <laughs> enjoyed it um and i i want to get a hard copy of it because i was reading it on my on my kindle and i i want to i like to have a copy so i'm gonna buy it i'm gonna buy it myself and i'm um, <laughs> reading it and give it away because i just thought it was super cool and i you know as a psychic i really love the research aspect of your book because m- most of my work and experience is like from my personal experience and it hasn't been sort of done in a scientific way so i just thought mm. it was um v- very validating that that the research you did um you know kind of just gives a little more credence or credibility to just like, well, some psychic said that's what happens, you know, <laughs> you yeah, know, I, I so. like, <laughs> I like it that she did actual research. Cause it's, it's cool. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Nice. Yeah. Nice to hear. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Um, fascinating stuff. And um, yeah, everyone should run right, up, run right out and read your book. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Lisa. That was, that was very enjoyable. Thank you. And thanks all of you guys for who are watching and listening. Um, you can find me on my website, lisacampion.com. I hope you stop by and say hi. And I just want to um, thank you all again for being with us today here on Empower Radio, where we are healing the planet one person at a time.
Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.